We've got a backup mic, too, just in case tonight. So good evening. Thankful for the presence of everyone. And as David mentioned just a moment ago, his songs were right on the money, right on the mark of what we're going to talk about tonight. Before we begin, I do want to say we really do appreciate our sound booth guys and John and Randy, all the work they do. Take a lot of that for granted. The songs being up here, the mics working or not working. They're trying to worship God, too, you know, and they're trying to make sure that we have what we have so people can hear that aren't here watching online and people in the back. And so appreciate y'all working with the mic this afternoon and making sure that all those things are working right for our worship tonight. Worldvision.org ran a survey, a study, and they compiled what they considered to be the most popular and well-known verses in the Bible. And there's a long list of those verses. They even broke it down into countries and which countries liked which verses the most. And some of the verses on the list, you could guess what they were. John 3:16 was number one, the golden text of the Bible. Jeremiah 29:11, I know the plans I have for you. Philippians 4:13, I can do all things through Christ. Or John 10 and verse 10, Jesus says, I've come that you might have life and have it in abundance. Proverbs 3 and verse 5, trust in the Lord. And down the list, they go with the verses. And it's interesting to see not only the verses selected, but the countries that chose which verses and what all of those verses have in common. All scripture is inspired by God. That means every verse of the Bible is important. Every verse of the Bible comes from God. Jesus says man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Matthew four and verse four. So every word of God is important. Every word in the Bible is God breathing inspired. But there are some verses in the Bible that press us closer and deeper into the presence of God than others. And I would argue about those verses, we should think more, contemplate more, and we should also spend more time in those verses and in those texts. If you have your Bible tonight, go ahead and turn it to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34 and the verses we'll be looking at tonight are verses 6 and 7. I don't think it would be an overstatement to say about these verses in the book of Exodus that they are the most important verses In the Old Testament. And I think you could even stretch it a little bit further than that to say they could potentially be the most important and impactful verses as far as the comprehensive nature of who God is in the entire Bible. I know when you say most important, most impactful, it's opinionated. It's a subjective idea to say these above the others. And I wouldn't get in a disagreement with you about it and split the church. But I think by sheer volume of quotations. You could make the case that God is saying something about himself in these verses that he really wants people to not only know, but to never forget. These verses are quoted more than any other verse in all the Bible, and they cover a wide variety of genre in which they're quoted than any other verse in all the Bible. It's mentioned in Numbers 14 and verse 18. It's quoted in Nehemiah 9:17, Nehemiah 9:31, and Psalm 5 in verse 8, Psalm 69 in verse 14. Psalm 86, 5, 86, 15, Psalm 103, 12 down through 18, Isaiah 63, 7, Joel 2, 13, Nahum 1 and verse 3. Just by sure volume of quotations, God's saying something to us about these verses because they keep coming up over and over again. When Old Testament Israel wanted to remind themselves or others about the God they serve, they quoted these verses. When they had really blown it and they thought maybe God's done with us, how do we know we're still in his good graces? They would quote these verses. When they were unsure about where they stood with God or was his compassion and kindness forever forgotten because they had finally crossed the line, they quoted these verses. And if you've got it in front of you, I'm sure you can read it. Exodus 34, beginning with verse 6, the Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful, abounding in long-suffering, patient in long-suffering, abounding in steadfast love, And faithfulness, 
showing steadfast love to thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. But then he says he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. I would argue these verses are verses to highlight, to memorize, to underline, to keep close to our heart. They funnel and fuel all of those other verses that were in that top 10 list. This is who God says that he is. He reveals himself to Moses as being this kind of God. And what I want to do tonight is really to walk through these verses and see what it is that God tells us about himself. Who is God in relation to these verses as he just simply reveals his nature to us and tells us himself who he is. Now, we could just walk through these verses line by line, and I think that would be beneficial for us. There's enough in these verses to merely quote them and go verse by verse would be a rich study in and of itself. But I think we love God more and we understand more about what he's saying in these verses when we zoom out and appreciate the context. So go ahead and turn back a page to Exodus 32. You know the context of Exodus 32. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law from God. At the foot of the mountain, Exodus 32 and verse 4, Aaron gets the earrings and the necklaces and the gold, and he fashions this golden calf. God tells Moses, go down. There's a noise in the camp. Moses descends from Mount Sinai and to his surprise, he sees partying and dancing and drinking and sexual promiscuity. And in his anger and rage, Exodus 32, 19, he throws down the two tablets and they break in half. But it's also symbolic. It's to say that just as he was receiving the law, these people had already broken the covenant that they were under. And God in his anger in chapter 32, verse 11 down through verse 14 is about to just obliterate and wipe out the nation of Israel completely. Moses has a discussion. He and God engage in a back and forth and God relents and he says, "Okay, I won't destroy him. You transition into chapter 33 in the first five verses. God says, go up from Sinai. And Moses is petrified. In Exodus 33 and verse 15, Moses says to God, if you don't go up with us, I won't go up. And God says in verse 14 of chapter 33, I will go up with you. But that's not enough for Moses. At this point, Moses wants more than a verbal commitment from God. And as Maddox read for us so well a moment ago, in Exodus 33 and verse 18, he says, God, I want you to show me your glory. And God says, that's impossible. No man can see my face and live. But this is what we'll do, Moses. I'll let my glory pass before you. You'll see my backside, so to speak. God doesn't have a literal backside, but he's saying to Moses, my glory is going to pass before you and I'll declare to you my name. You get up in the cleft of the rock and I'll pass by and I'll tell you and I'll show you who I am. Exodus 33, 18 down through 23. And then when you get to chapter 34 in verse five, God descends in a cloud and he proclaims to Moses the text we're going to study tonight. I don't know what they expected to hear and I don't know what you expect to hear after they have violated God's covenant, broken his laws, participated in idolatry. What do you think God's going to proclaim about himself? It doesn't really matter what we think. What God says to Moses is not the Lord, the Lord cranky, frustrated, angry, short tempered. Neither does he say God, the Lord, a pushover, lenient and merely tolerant. What we have in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is God describing himself in his own words on a day when his anger is roused and people have violated his covenant. And what he says to Moses and to Israel and us by extension is all the more special because you don't expect to find this. We sort of have developed this idea in our society that the God of the Old Testament is wrathful and vengeful and angry. The God of the New Testament, grace and mercy and compassion. And God shows up in Exodus 34, 6 and 7 and he says, May I tell you who I am and declare to you my glory tonight? Let's notice five things about who God is as he describes himself in his own words. Number one, 
Who is God? God says that he is merciful and gracious. He starts out by defining himself as the Lord. The Lord, he says that twice. This is his covenant name with the people of Israel, Yahweh. That's who he is. It's who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. You remember Exodus chapter 3, 14 and 15. Moses says, who will I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. That's who sent you. God shows up and he says, I am the Lord, the ever existing one. The God who's from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90 and verse two. The first thing he says to Moses is, I'm the Lord. I'm your God. Isaiah 44 and verse six. Isaiah 45 and verse five. I'm God. I won't give my glory to another. Here's who I am. And Moses is prepared to see God in all of his glory. And the first thing that God says out of his mouth is, I am merciful. I don't know if it's the first thing you think about when you think about God, especially in the Old Testament. But it's the first thing God says about himself. And it makes all the difference. The first thing God wants Moses and Israel to know about him is the God you're approaching. I'm a God of glory and excellence, but I'm merciful. Now, what does merciful mean? It means compassionate. It means tenderhearted. It means when you approach God, you're approaching a God who is tender and gentle, just like a mother would be with her children. This word for merciful is used throughout the Old Testament and almost always with one possible exception. It always refers to God. It's used that way about God in Deuteronomy 4 and verse 31. God says, I'm merciful and gracious and in my anger, I won't destroy you or break the covenant because that's who God is. Surely this was good news for Moses. If you look back, look at Exodus 32 and verse nine and Exodus 33 and verse five. Israel is described in both of those passages as being hard hearted and stiff necked. But thankfully, God was soft hearted and compassionate and he didn't obliterate the people. The God that we serve describes himself as a God that is merciful. That means God doesn't exact the full measure of punishment right away whenever he could. But instead, he gives people a second chance. Christianity and our relationship with God is not baseball. It's not three strikes and you're out. It's not you've messed up and you can't approach God again. Instead, we serve God who welcomes us back into his presence. It's what Hezekiah told the people as he reinstituted the Passover. Second Chronicles 30 and verse nine, he says, if we turn and we repent, we're approaching a God. And he quotes this passage who is merciful and gracious, who relents to do the evil because that's who he is toward us. May this verse and these verses forever dispel the myth that the God of the Old Testament had a short fuse, that he was angry and upset and ultimately just couldn't wait to destroy people. But only in the New Testament in Jesus do we really meet the merciful and kind, gracious God. The first thing God says to Moses is, if you're going to know anything about me, you've got to come to learn and appreciate that I'm merciful. But God says I'm also gracious. What do you think about when you think about grace? Grace in this context means that God is kind, that God is nice. Do you serve a nice and a kind God? If you serve the God of the Bible, you do. Peter calls him the God of all grace. First Peter five and verse 10. Paul says salvation comes Ephesians two, seven, because God wants to show the immeasurable riches of his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. That means God saves everybody in the world the way that he does by grace through faith. So people will come to know how nice and kind God is. Somebody says this sounds a little lovey dovey, a little uncomfortable. What about God's wrath? What about God's punishment? More on that in a minute. But we can't, in our effort to be balanced, exchange what God says about himself for that which makes us more comfortable. If God is heavy hearted on one area saying this is who I am and emphasizing these attributes above and over the others, we should make sure that we do the same. This is God in his own words saying to Israel, this is who I am. I'm a God that's gracious. I'm a God that stretches out towards you and that doesn't want to harm you. 
but instead I want to I want to save you. If you Google right now, not during my lesson, but maybe tonight, the nicest judge in the world, just type that into Google. This this man, Frank Caprio is going to pop up and some of you shaking your head. You already know that this 80 year old man has become an Internet sensation overnight for what he does in the courtroom. He said he first learned kindness from his Italian father was an immigrant who was a fruit farmer and a man that also was a milk person. He sold milk and he would cover the bills of his customers who were indebted to him. And he was just a kind and generous man. His videos have been viewed millions of times on social media and on YouTube as people come into his courtroom. And Mr. Frank is just kind and gracious to him. But there's one video that stands head and shoulders above the rest. This video has been viewed 170 million times on Facebook alone. A woman came into his courtroom. She was already torn to pieces. And he said, ma'am, why are you here today? She says, I've got parking tickets. He looked down at his record. She owed four hundred dollars in parking tickets. He said, how would you get in this situation? She starts telling him one hardship after another, after another. And finally, she breaks down. She says, my son was stabbed a few weeks ago and I've been going into places and I've been at this place. And then I forget about the parking meter and I just can't put two and two together. And he says, ma'am, I'm so sorry. Nobody should be suffering what you're suffering. Nobody should be going through what you're going through. I reduce your fine this minute to $50. Can you pay $50? She says, yes, I can pay $50. She starts to wipe her tears. She says, wait a minute. If you pay the $50, will you have any money left? She says, yes, I have $5 left. Frank says, I can't do that. I can't let you leave this courtroom with just $5. Your whole debt is forgiven. It's wiped away. It's hard to watch the video without breaking down 170 million times. People see that kind of mercy, that kind of grace. They can't look away. What if they knew the God they were going to encounter in the Bible was merciful and gracious? 170 million times. Would you look at the text that often? Because the Bible says that's the God that we come into contact with. That's the God we serve, a God that's merciful and gracious, one that extends mercy to people and who says, I can't let you walk around life scraping the bottom of life's barrel. And so Habakkuk says in chapter three and verse two of that book, in wrath, God, remember mercy as if he needed to be reminded is who he is. He's merciful and gracious. And on Israel's worst day at the start of their nation, God says, this is the kind of God you're dealing with. Merciful. And gracious, you don't deserve it, but I extend it because that's exactly who I am. Number two, who is God? God describes himself as patient. The text in the original language doesn't have the word patient. This is actually a phrase. It really says God's merciful, gracious and long nose. In the ancient world, when people got upset, their nose would get hot. You've seen this. Maybe this happens to you. People get mad. Their nose starts to flare. You've ever seen that before? Well, when somebody got mad in the ancient world, they would say his or her nose is extremely hot. And what Moses says here is God has a long nose. That is to say, if God's going to get angry, he's got a long nose. It takes a long time for God to get upset. He doesn't just flip a switch. He doesn't have a short fuse. On the contrary, Moses says he has a very long fuse. God does get angry. It takes a long time for God to get there. He's merciful and gracious. And then he's patient. He's slow to anger. He doesn't want to be upset. Instead, he wants to welcome people into his presence. Israel was glad to hear these words. Moses said about them in Deuteronomy 9:24, you all have been rebellious against the Lord since the day I knew you. And let your mind just start rolling through the Old Testament tape about all the things that Israel did to upset and frustrate God. When they came out of the Red Sea, as soon as God delivered them in Exodus 15 at Ramah, they were frustrated. You remember at Marah, Exodus 15, 23 to 24, no water. This water is bitter. We want to go back to Egypt. 
Or before the manna in Exodus 16, 1 through 3, we miss the the pots and the leeks and the onions that we had back in Egypt. Or in Exodus 17 at Rephidim, Exodus 17 and verse 3, we're thirsty. All of those things Israel did, even down to Exodus 32 and verse 4, not only fashioning a golden idol, but crediting that idol with the deliverance that God provides. God watches all of this. They spit in his face through idolatry and God says, I'm not that mad yet. I'm merciful and gracious. It takes a long time to get me there. I'm compassionate towards you. I'm holding back. I'm holding in. I don't want to punish you. The God we serve is a God of patience. That doesn't mean we can stump on it or trample on it or mock him and think that God won't punish us. He will. But there is a grace, as we just sung about a moment ago, that's greater than all our sins. Romans 5 and verse 20, where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Why is that the case? It's because the God we serve is patient. Turn your Bible to 2 Peter chapter 3. Hold your hand in Exodus and go to 2 Peter 3. In this passage, same idea. People are mocking God because Jesus hasn't returned. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, you remember, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some men count slowness, but he is long-suffering toward us. God's not slow to fulfill a promise, but he is slow to get angry. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Somebody says, wait a minute, Hiram, I've read the Old Testament. And there are times when God's upset. Have you read about Noah and the flood? Yes. But what does Peter say in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20? In the days when the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah. Question, how long did God wait before he destroyed the whole world with the flood? According to Peter in 1 Peter 3 and verse 20, a very long time. Because it takes a long time for God to get upset. He's patient toward people. He sees us rebelling and disobeying and he's saying, I want to give you an opportunity. I want to give you a chance. I want to be patient toward you. Clint Eastwood in the 1983 movie, you know the line. Maybe you don't know the movie, but you know the line, make my day. What does that mean? It means people use it to say, oh, just give me a reason, right? Just give me an opportunity to flex my muscle. Give me an opportunity to execute punishment on you because of your wickedness, because of whatever you've done that's wrong. And sometimes we're like that. Make my day. Wake up on the wrong side of the bed, just make my day. I've got time today. I've been waiting for you, right? You work with somebody there in the office frustrating you, and this just happens to be the day. You're ready to let it loose on them. The God you serve is never like that. Never, ever does God look on any human being and say, make my day. Instead, God's saying, please don't do this. Please don't make it come to this. I will if I have to, but I would really rather not. Please don't make me execute. Don't make me punish. Turn and repent. Ezekiel 18, 23, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked instead, but that he would turn from his wicked way and live. God wants people to be saved. And so God holds back. He doesn't punish. In fact, he told Abraham in Genesis 15, people say, well, what about the nation of Canaan? God destroyed all of those nations. He told Abraham in Genesis 15 and verse 16, I cannot give your people the land yet. There'll be four generations because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. What does that mean? Evidently, in the mind of God, there's a level and God doesn't punish people until they reach that level, at least in the Old Testament. The iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Four hundred years. You don't know anybody that patient. God says, I won't destroy these folks. I really want to give them a chance because that's who I am. How are you doing with patience tonight? First Thessalonians 5:14 says, be patient toward all men. But if we're honest, every one of us could work on it. We find ourselves saying, don't they get it by now? I'm telling you one more time. And that's it. Hey, this is pretty simple. Why haven't they figured this out? I don't see why they if you don't want to get it by now, you just don't you don't you won't get it. We get frustrated with people and we're short with people. We want God's mercy and patience toward us, but his swift justice toward others. 
And the reality is God wants everybody to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. First Timothy two and verse four. And so he waits and he's patient and he gives people an opportunity to turn to him. He says over and over again in the Bible, I would not like to punish. I don't delight in doing this turn. Nahum one in verse three says he's slow to anger and mighty in power. He's never going to fly off the handle. He's not an angry tyrant who just loses control and just says enough is enough and blast everybody. He's calculated and precise because he wants people to turn to him and he wants to welcome them home. And when you think about God's patience toward you, it'll fuel your patience toward others. I'm telling you, this passage is important because if you know who God is, it'll change who you are. Can you think for a minute about why can you come up with one good reason why God didn't send Jesus the day before you obeyed the gospel? Can you think about why at this very moment God's still patient toward us and all of our weakness? There really is no good reason. We don't deserve it. And yet it is expended. God does it. He gives it to us and we should give it to others. Moses declares God or God declares himself to Moses as patient. Jonathan Edwards was a 17th century theologian. His most famous sermon was sinners in the hand of an angry God. When he preached this sermon, people say it was the start of what's called in this country the Great Awakening, the first Great Awakening. His sermon went on for hours. It was so impactful as Edwards preached. People were literally calling out of the midst of the sermon, what must I do to be saved? They were terrified. They were falling out in the aisles and fainting. Edwards talked about sinners in the hands of an angry God, and he described it in various and vivid terms. He said, your soul in the end. You're hanging on by a thread beneath right right above the fires of everlasting hell. People were petrified. And there's a lot of different views and commentary on the sermon on whether Edwards was too vivid and fanciful, whether it's exactly what people needed to wake them up. But I'm just going to tell you, the God of the Bible is wrathful. Hell is real. Punishment is sure. But God does not rely on scare tactics to get people to respond to him. God does say, if you turn to me, I'll save you. If you don't, there'll be punishment. But if we have in our mind a picture of God who delights in punishment, who can't wait to send people to hell, the most vile and wicked people to just disperse with them, we don't have a picture of the biblical God. Because the God of Scripture says, I'm patient. I hold back. Isaiah 48 and verse 9, he says, I withhold my anger so that I might be patient and merciful and gracious toward you. He says, this is who I am. Psalm 50 in verse 15. I delight in showing steadfast love and mercy to you and I withhold the punishment that you rightly deserve. Israel was unworthy of God's patience. And yet God says, that's exactly who I am. Now, here's number three. God describes himself in Exodus 34 as a God full of love and faithfulness. The translations vary here, but most translations say that he's full of steadfast love. I believe the old King James says that he's full of goodness and truth or something along those lines. But what this word means is that God is good. God keeps his covenant and God won't break it with other individuals. Throughout the Bible, you find God being described as good or as faithful. Psalm 25 and verse eight says the Lord is good and upright. Psalm 100 and verse five. God is good and he gives good things. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord because he is good. Psalm 136 and verse one. And in this passage, God says, I'm faithful to the covenant. I'm a good God. I have steadfast love. And notice what else the verse says in verse six. He abounds in it. That means he has more of it than you can ever imagine. It's not just that he has a little bit of it and it may run out. I abound in steadfast love and faithfulness. It's who he is. It bubbles forth. Just think about this. How many times do you read in the Bible? There are places Deuteronomy 32, 31, 1 Kings 16, 13, Jeremiah 8, 19. You might read a phrase like this. They provoke the Lord to anger. Question, what does that mean? 
Somebody provoke God to anger. What does that mean? It means God saying, hey, the point we just discussed, I'm patient, I'm merciful, but you got me there. Hey, I don't want to do this, but here we are. And they provoke God to anger. Over and over again, we read about God being provoked to anger, never provoked to love. He doesn't need any help. God can be provoked to anger. He doesn't have to be provoked to love and mercy because it flows out of who he is. By nature, is who his heart is. And God's saying, you don't have to push me in this way. I abound in it. I'm rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 and verse 4, God says, this is who I am. And I'm faithful to the covenant. Archaeologists have found various covenant treaties in the ancient world. And in these covenant treaties, there's discussions between subjects and between their masters. They talk about, hey, I've got this responsibility and you've got this responsibility. If you do your part, I'll do my part. And there's usually an exchange. And if you don't do your part, then here's going to be the punishments. Nowhere in the ancient world, except for Old Testament Israel, does anybody have a covenant arranged with their God? People, it was unfathomable to them that God would enter into a relationship with them. Most of the pagan gods were worse off than the people. They had to be appeased through sacrifices and money and gifts or they would fly off the handle. And here God says, we not only are in covenant together, but I abound in this loving covenant and I'm not going to go back on my word. Even though Israel is at the foot of Mount Sinai already breaking the covenant, God says, I'm going to hold up my end of the bargain because it's who I am. Turn your Bible to Jonah chapter four. Jonah knew this about God and it frustrated him. God tells Jonah, go to Nineveh and preach to that city. 30 days, yet 30 days Nineveh will be overthrown. Eight words in his sermon. The whole city of Nineveh repents. And Jonah's mad about it. And you remember what he says in Jonah chapter four and verse two. I knew you were like this, God. I knew it. This is why I fled to Tarshish, because I knew who you were. Essentially, Jonah's saying, God, I knew you were a pushover. And question, what does he quote in Jonah four and verse two? The passage we're studying tonight. It's on Jonah's lips. He says, I knew how you operate. I knew who you are. How is that, Jonah? Merciful, gracious, long suffering. You relent against disaster. You really don't like to punish people. And God says, I'm faithful toward the covenant. I won't break my word. It's who I am. I'm full of this. This is who I am and my relationship toward Israel. Last quarter, David Palman and Jim Humphreys, they taught Genesis in the auditorium on Sunday. And David talked about that obscure passage in Genesis 15. Where God appears to Abraham and he says, you've been faithful. Abraham says, I believe God says, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And then there's this weird ceremony where there are these dead animals. They are dead. They're flayed. They're laid open. And there's this mysterious light or fire that passes through. And David talked about how that was God going into a covenant agreement with Abraham. And he was saying to Abraham, I plan to keep my end of the covenant, even if it means death. Jewish interpreters that believe the Old Testament but don't believe that Jesus is the Messiah, they say about that passage, what it looks like is happening in Genesis 15, 7 down through 17, is that God is in covenant with Abraham and God is saying to Abraham, I will keep my end of the covenant and if I don't, I will die. You can kill me. But of course that can't be what's being said, they say, because God can't die. But people that know the New Testament know better. That's exactly what God's saying. He would die, but it's not because he didn't keep the covenant. It's because we didn't keep it. Jesus goes in on our behalf and dies in our stead. Second Corinthians 521 so that he can keep the covenant. But Moses says God is also a God of faithfulness and truth. The God we serve doesn't lie because he can't lie. Titus one and verse two. Numbers 23 and verse 19, it's impossible for God to lie. We serve a God of truth. No wonder God says, be faithful to me until death and I'll give you the crown of life. God's been faithful to us. God says, you be faithful to me. His faithfulness doesn't really depend on our faithfulness toward him. It's not like God saying, well, if you fail, I will fail. But the fact that God's faithful to us should fuel our faithfulness toward him. 
2 Timothy 2.13, Paul says, if we deny him, he can't deny himself. God's been faithful toward us, Revelation 2.10. We ought to render faithfulness back to him. The God Israel served and the God we serve is full of love. He's also full of faithfulness and he's full of truth. Jesus shows up in John 14.6. I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. You know, people get married and they stand before a preacher or somebody in a court and they make vows. Husband and wife, they say they're going to do things and that they won't do things. They won't desert. They won't forsake. They won't abandon. They're going to stick it out. They're going to be close to each other no matter what. And when we get baptized, we're saying the same thing to God. We're saying, God, as I've been obedient this day, you've washed away my sins. I'm going to keep my end of the bargain. We're entering into that covenant. And some people, they falter, they fail, they turn away from the Lord. God always keeps his end of the bargain because he is a God full of faithfulness and truth. He doesn't turn back. He keeps his word, even if it kills him, even when it did, because he's the only one that really loves us to death. Jesus says, I give my flesh for the life of the world. John 6, 51. No man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. I have power to lay it down. And to take it up again, John 10 and verse 18. Who is God? God says, I'm a God full of love and full of faithfulness. Here's number five or number four. God is forgiving. God says, I forgive iniquity, transgression and sin. God describes himself as a God who doesn't hold a grudge, but instead as a God who wipes away our sins and who forgives. He forgave Israel on this day and he forgives us up to the present moment in Christ. Now, you read through the book of Leviticus and it's a book filled with blood and you read it and you might think this is a pretty tedious operation. All of these sacrifices, all of this blood just to get forgiveness. But another way to look at it would be to say how desperately God wanted the record to be clear. How much God wanted people to be forgiven so that he made provision for any type of failing on our part, any kind of weakness on our end. Jeremiah 50 and verse 20 says there would be a day when you would look for sin in Judah and you wouldn't find it because God would forgive. God says, I'll forgive all of your iniquities, all of your transgressions. Jeremiah 33 and verse 8. And that's exactly who Israel finds. The God we find in the Old Testament, we struggle to reconcile this. We sort of want to view God as holding a grudge. It's how our hearts have been conditioned. But it's not who God is. And God says, I forgive you. Iniquity, transgression, sin. We might use those words interchangeably, but they mean three different things. Crime, rebellion and just sin in general. God says, guess what? I forgive all of it. Go to Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 shows not only God's forgiveness, but also our struggle to accept God as the God who forgives. We sometimes view God through our lens instead of who he is and his lens. And so Moses has to reveal God to us in Exodus 34. But throughout the Bible, God has to remind people, I'm serious. I forgive you. Isaiah 55 and verse six, he says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous his thoughts. Let him turn to our God. He's a God of compassion and he will abundantly pardon. That's God saying, I forgive you. But notice verse eight and verse nine. For my ways are not your ways or my thoughts, your thoughts as the heavens are high above the earth. So are my ways above your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I know Isaiah 55, eight and nine says essentially God's smarter than us. But in the context, what Isaiah is saying is God will forgive you. And it doesn't make sense to you. You struggle to believe it. But God's thoughts and his ways are above your ways. If somebody wronged you like you've wronged God, you might not forgive. But God says, come to me and I will. And if it's too hard for you to accept, if it's too difficult for you to believe, just remember, I don't think like you. I don't reason like you. It's not too good to be true. It's true. My thoughts and my ways are far above yours. Come to me and I will forgive. And that's what God promises. And if it's that simple. Why do so many millions of people press into eternity unforgiven? 
So many people plunge into eternity and stand before God. They've never obeyed the gospel. You study with people and you say, hey, here's what the New Testament says a person has to do to be saved. And they argue against it. Or maybe they've done it at some point in the past, but they cling to some sin and they won't come to him and walk in the light so that they might be forgiven. God says, I want to forgive you and I will. Iniquity, transgression and sin. Nothing has to stand between me and you, but it's up to you to decide to accept and receive that forgiveness. Israel was undeserving of it, just like we are. And yet God says, it's who I am. I'm a forgiving God who extends forgiveness to the unforgivable. C.S. Lewis said about forgiveness that in the end, forgiveness from God causes us to forgive the inexcusable in others because God has forgiven the inexcusable in us. If you know what you've been forgiven, you won't hold a grudge. You won't make people tap dance and jump through hoops to show you they're really, really sorry. Ephesians 4.32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ forgave you. And because God's a forgiving God, as a result of that, those who have walked with him and have been forgiven ought to be forgiving people. Now, here's the fifth one. God is just and righteous. God's merciful, kind and gracious. God is forgiving. But this last part, God says he will by no means clear the guilty. Instead, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God says, I will punish sin. Eventually, God does get to the point where God says sin has to be atoned for and nobody gets by. Some people don't like this part about who God is. They love the first part. They're God's loving. They're God's gracious. They're God's compassionate and long suffering, but no wrath of God. And if we leave this last line off, we don't have a full picture of who God is. God says, yes, I'm merciful. I'm gracious. I'm kind. And the goodness of God should lead you to repentance. But if you persist in sin, you will be punished. That's why the point about forgiveness is so important, because without it, we will perish and be forever lost. In John 8, 24, when Jesus says, unless you believe that I'm he, you will die in your sins. He's not making a compromise with us. It's an ultimatum. He's saying only through me can you be forgiven because somebody has to atone for your sin and mine. And God says everybody in the world has two options. Either you accept the sacrifice that I provided in Jesus and we'll let bygones be bygones. We'll wipe it away. In fact, I'll absorb the debt myself. But if you reject that and refuse that, you bear the penalty yourself. But somebody will pay for your sins. Everybody's sins in the world will be paid for, if not now, in eternity. And God says, I'm just and I'm righteous. Nahum 1 and verse 3, I will not let the wicked or the guilty get away. God can't look people in the face that are guilty of sin and just say, well, no big deal and shrug his shoulders. God says somebody's got to make atonement for that. Something has to be done to make this right. I've made provisions. Would you accept it? He's just and righteous. First John one and verse nine. And he doesn't let the guilty get away. But what about this last part? Punishing iniquity of the children to the third and fourth generations. Is God saying in this passage that, hey, if you commit sins, I'll put the punishment on your children. Surely that's not what God's saying. Several times in the Old Testament, 2 Chronicles 25, 4, Deuteronomy 24, 16, God says children don't suffer for their parents' sin. So what is God saying here when he says, I'm going to punish this sin to the third and fourth generations? There are at least three possibilities. Possibility number one, God saying, if your children commit the same types of sin, I still will hate it three and four generations from now. Deuteronomy 5, 9 and 10, God says, if you commit idolatry, I'm going to punish it with you just like I did with your parents. God could be saying three and four generations later, I'll still hate the same sins. Option number two, God could be saying to Israel, hey, I'm going to punish your sins. 
And if you commit sin and you think, well, I've gotten away with it, three or four generations have passed and you're a great, great, great granddad holding your great, great grandson on your knee and you think, well, I've gotten by with this. I've gotten away with this sin. I will punish the iniquity and transgression to the third and fourth generations. I won't forget it. Or God possibly is saying, I think this is probably right, that though we don't bear the guilt of other people's sins, there are consequences that sometimes trickle down into our lives because other people violate the will of God. People in our lives violate the will of God and our sins have far reaching implications and consequences beyond ourselves. We're not blackened or stained with Adam's sin, but because of what he and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, our world is different. And God says that's true in your life. You commit sin. Your children won't suffer directly because God's punishing them for your sins. But the consequences trickle down. And God says, I'm just I'm righteous and I can't let sin just pass me by. And so God reveals himself to Moses and he says, this is who I am. And I invite Israel into a covenant relationship with me so that they might know me and ultimately be saved. Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is important in the Old Testament, but I think it's also important in the New. Knowing this passage and walking into the gospel accounts, you see Jesus for all that he is. He's merciful as he eats with sinners and with prostitutes and tax collectors. Luke 5, 31 and 32. He's patient even when his disciples don't get it the first time. He reminds them again and again. And right before his crucifixion, he stoops down to wash their feet and let lessons on humility sink in one more time. His love and faithfulness flows out even when people don't deserve it. But yet he's just he can look sinners in the eye and say, your accusers are gone, but you don't have my permission to sin anymore or worse things might happen to you. As we use Exodus 34, 6 and 7 as our divine scorecard, Jesus gets straight A's in every God seminar he takes. He is God. When he says, my heart is gentle and lowly, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. He's saying, I'm the God of Exodus 34, 6 and 7. And a knowledge of this shapes everything that we believe about God, how we approach him and the severity of our sin and what it costs God to forgive us. And Jesus says, here I am, Exodus 34, 6 and 7, in flesh and bones is Jesus Christ. He loves sinners enough to save them, but also was just and righteous enough to give his life so that everybody in the world could have their sins atoned for. You could say that one of the major emphases of the Christian life is on a daily basis, trying to outwork our views of God and allow God's view of who he says he is to work into our lives. The Christian life can be described as this backwards and forwards saying to God, show me your glory. And God saying to us over and over again, this is exactly who I am. And we have to do hard work to get the assumptions about who we think God is out of our minds and get the certainty of who God declares himself to be into our hearts as he reveals himself in the text. God's loving and gracious and kind. God's also just and fury and wrath. And if you have one of those and not the other. It's a lopsided view of God and not the God of the Bible. God says, Moses, I'll show you my glory. And this is who I am. And maybe tonight somebody needs to embrace that glory. Turn to Jesus in order to be saved. God invites everybody. He's patient and long suffering. But Paul says the times of the ignorance God's overlooked. Now he's calling everybody in the world to repent because he's appointed a day in which he's going to judge the world through Jesus. And if you need to obey the gospel tonight, we'd be happy to assist you in doing that if you have. And you need the prayers of the church. God is long suffering, compassionate, takes a long time for God to get angry. We would love to pray with you and pray on your behalf. We're going to be letting the song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.